lives with the heavy, heavy heart of the mass shootings that happened yesterday. Um, and again, overnight um, in Dayton, Ohio, and El Paso, Texas, yesterday, it is so incredibly heavy. I just want to take this time to just pause and address that. As I came in this morning, knowing that we had to address it, I have to confess that I honestly don't know what to pray. I'm tired of praying in these situations, as I'm sure you are too. Coming in with that heavy heart, really not knowing, what do we say, Lord? What do we do? We have a brother, a friend, um, James, who is here nearly every Sunday morning. He's a part of our St. Joseph's family. He walked in as I was wrestling through this and prayed over our church family and prayed over me, reminding me that it is only in Jesus that we have our hope to not be distracted and to not be discouraged from this work because it is the only work that can overcome the force of evil. And that is why we are here in this place week after week. Because it's not just about how we pray, it is not just what we pray, but it is the seeds that we sow of God's goodness in the world around us. And so my prayer in this moment and in this morning is for each of you, for us as a church family to respond, not just in prayer, but in action. Because we have a sphere of influence around us that we can impact. There are things that happen on the national news and on the national scale that we have very little influence over. But we have very large impact on the immediate surroundings, the people that we do life with day in and day out. And how do we sow those seeds of God's love and his goodness? So let's just take a moment. We're just going to be silent. And then we will pray. But that prayer is, is not just over the loss, the we do pray for that. We pray for every person who is impacted by this tragedy. And may we not ever grow callous to it, but come back again against the forces of evil even stronger. Because God can work through tragedy. Though his heart breaks every single time in every violent situation, his heart is broken. But he can work in and through that. And so we will pray for that as well, for his work. Let's just take a moment of silence.
Lord, we just acknowledge your presence in this moment. We acknowledge that your heart is grieved. by the loss of these lives, the atrocities that can be carried out in just a moment. These are the things of the evil one. And God, none of us is strong enough to stand against that on our own. Our hearts grieve as well, and I pray that they will continue to be grieved every, every time we hear of such news of violence. But Lord, don't let us be stuck in that moment because your love that has redeemed us causes movement. We must move forward. We must stand against such violence and tragedy. I pray that you will open our eyes, God, to see where in our spheres of influence we can be having a greater impact to sow the seeds of your goodness. That those who are, that those who are impacted greatly, God, whether by such tragedy, whether struggling in their own lives, God, that we can journey with folks and lift them up. Because there are strongholds of evil that come against this world. And you have called us to come together as a body of believers to take action. So open us up, God. Turn the grief, turn the anger to tangible actions of love that move with intent to share your heart. God, as we step into this time of teaching, God, just reveal what it is today that you would have us to learn, to see, and to do. Only by the power of your Holy Spirit, Lord, let us take a step forward today. In your mighty and holy name, Jesus. Amen. Good morning. Um, So I must confess, um, am I too close to that? As, um, you know, as this morning I'm, preparing to stand up here and give you this word, I was kind of in a, a place of like, how do, I, how do I even, right? How do I even stand up here and pretend 
like something didn't happen and um, just dig into scripture. Um, so I'm very thankful um, for Justin um, coming to, to pray and to acknowledge it. And, um, and also, as I was struggling with that, I remembered where it is that God has called me and um, who it is that he's called me to serve. And that's you guys <laughs> and this church and this town um, and, and to love. And so here I am, and I'm going to do my best um, just showing up. And so um, today I've been um, given the task of preaching from Acts 17, which we're continuing in our series on Paul and Acts. And uh, so, yeah, I'm going to do that. And before I do that, I just kind of want to, I know we just had a time of prayer, but to pray again and just to prepare our hearts and my own especially. So if you'll pray with me. Lord, God, in your strong and your mighty name, I just pray that you cast away anxiety, especially my own, Lord. That you just prepare us mentally and prepare our hearts to be receptive this morning, even though it may feel like we want to close them off, Lord, that we will be open, Lord. And that from this ancient text that feels old, Lord, that you will breathe new life into it because it is living and it is our word and it is your word, God, given to us. And so I pray that from this, Lord, you will speak, Lord. Um, Just pray for your presence here, God, among us. And I pray this in confidence in the name of Jesus. Amen. Okay, so... Acts 17. I'm not going to read the whole chapter to you because it's kind of long, um, but I, I do want to touch on all of it. So um, there's a lot happening here. We are continuing on. We have Paul with Silas and Timothy, um, and the first place they come to is Thessalonica, and then in Acts 17 we have them in Berea, and finally in Athens, which I'm very excited about. So I'll spend most of my time talking about Athens, um, but I do kind of want to go over what's going on before then. So um, I'm going to start with Thessalonica. So like I said, Paul, Silas, and Timothy are all together. And what we see there is that Paul goes into the synagogue, as he has done in, in all these cities, right? And we're told he reasons with them from the scriptures, which is really cool. I mean, it's not much different than what he's been doing, except what we see differently here and in the cities to follow is a lack of miracles. So a lot of times when the apostles went, they had these miracles too that also kind of showed their authority and who they were. But here we have um, Paul just reasoning and, and, and telling them the story, right? The story of Jesus and pointing to it in scripture. And I think that's really cool because I think this is one of those places where it's a lot easier for us to put ourselves in the story. Paul's doing something not so different than what is asked of us in our world and in our time, right? And so uh, I think with that, there's a lot for us to learn here um, in what Paul goes through. So we're told that he does that, and um, it says that some joined him, some heard that and received it, and notably a lot of Greeks that were around in the synagogue and leading women, so um, people of influence, which is important. However, there is a group of Jews in the temple or in the synagogue who hear this and are quite upset, and they form kind of a, a group to come and drive Paul out. So we're going to start there. Um, and if you'll read with me, starting, it'll be up here, um, on verse 6. We're going to read 
six, or actually five, sorry, five through nine. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. So um, I confess as I read this, I kind of have one image in mind um, that I will share with you. (laughs) So for those of you that don't know, this is the mob scene from Beauty and the Beast where they sing this great mob song about going to get the beast. And it kind of feels that when he's talking about, you know, grabbing some wicked men of the rabble, let's go stir up the village and get Paul out. Um, In reality, I'm sure it was far less comical. Also, I have to point out this axe, I really always thought that was a shoe on a stick growing up. (laughs) Anyone else? Um, But in all seriousness, you know, we've had Paul on this journey and several times he's come up against this accusation and he's been brought um, into jail and all these things hindering his mission. And so here come all these people um, pretty much set to do the same thing. Um, But what we find instead is that there's this man, Jason, who has agreed to host Paul, protecting him. Um, And so it kind of begs the question, who is this Jason? We haven't really heard of him yet. So presumably, Jason's just a new convert. He's um, one that's either heard Paul's message before or um, just heard it now and is taken in and agreed to host him, right? And in that, we see um, that he protects him, and it says, you know, he gives money as security for them, which I think when you read it kind of sounds like a bribe, right? But in all actuality, this is a financial bond, kind of like you would pay a bond to get someone out of jail. Um, And so basically, it's secured that if Paul and his crew, you know, caused another disturbance in this city, then Jason and his whole household would be held responsible. And that would mean loss of property. They would go to court, could potentially end up in jail. And I think that's really cool to see. He's brand new to this, and yet he's willing to put everything on the line. And I think that's a challenge to us, right? How much of our lives, of your life, of your house, so to speak, right? Are you willing to put in jeopardy for the kingdom of God to advance? I realize I'm barely into this sermon and I'm already asking you really tough questions, so I'm sorry. I hope you had your coffee. We're going to keep going. (laughs) Okay, so that happens and we see Paul and Silas move on um, into... Berea, which is a nearby town, um, you know, in order not to stir anything else up, they leave. Um, and we get quite a different picture in Berea. I'm going to read um, just a couple verses here, starting in verse 11. Um, now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed 
with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. So yeah, it's a, it's a much different story. Um, he goes, does the same thing, goes into the temple, reasons from the scriptures, and instead of being met with some response and then a mob, um, many want to know. They want to know more, which is incredible. And I think, like I said, this is a place with Paul where we're kind of putting ourselves in the story. And I think there's an important reality here that Paul faces and that we face too, right? Is that sometimes sharing the gospel comes easily, and sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes doing the work of Christ, loving like Jesus, comes easily and is met with great response, and sometimes it isn't, and that's just reality. But there's some things we learn from Paul in this. So the first one, and it's really important, is that we aren't sent alone. You know, Paul, as he's going into Thessalonica and Berea, um, and even into Athens, we'll get to, um, he recognizes the need to have the body of Christ working together. And so he has Silas, and he has Timothy, and then this man, Jason, that God sends to protect him. And that's important. Like, we are a body, and we work together. So if you find yourself in those spaces where it's tough, I encourage you to look for those that God has sent to go with you and to guide you on your way. The second thing I think we can learn from Paul is that even the small successes matter, right? We see in Thessalonica um, that Paul, um, it says that he just has some that, that hear him versus in Berea where it's like many. But those some matter a lot. In fact, the um, Thessalo Thessalonian church that develops there is really important. It, it suffers a lot of persecution Paul knows it's going to happen, um, but it becomes an important hub for Christianity where it's at because it's located along this Roman road, this great trade area, and, you know, Paul was not haphazard about where he went. He was there for a reason, um, and so the work that is done there becomes really important for the early church development. Um, and the third thing I think that Paul teaches us is in that um, is to pay attention to what God is doing in the lives that those, uh, of those that you mentor. Um, and don't be disheard, disheartened. Wow, I can't talk this morning, guys. Don't be disheartened um, by the failures and, and by those that are persecuting you. Because um, the reality is, despite the reception that he got in Thessalonica, despite this, this violent response and this threat to him, um, Paul continues to pour into those in Thessalonica that heard him. And in fact, in Scripture, we have two letters documenting where he is continually encouraging them and um, praising the work that they are doing and celebrating their faith. And I think that is a good model for us, right? When it feels like so much is against us to focus on where God is doing good in the lives of those around us and pour into that. All is not, oh, thanks. Y'all can say amen. Please laugh if I tell a joke. <laughs> I'm not as much of a jokester as Matt. I tend to be more serious. I'm sorry. My Beauty and the Beast picture was as far as I got. Um, so I, um, I'm going to read just kind of briefly 
Um, actually, I won't read, I'll just summarize. So at the end of this, he does have lots of people join him in Berea, but what ends up happening is that same angry mob um, here's what's happening in the nearby town, and they come to put a stop to it there. Um, and so before they can get there and just cause more disturbance, Paul leaves, and he goes ahead on to Athens. Um, and it says he leaves Silas and Timothy behind. However, as soon as he gets to Athens, he calls them to come. And as we get to what's happening in Athens, we'll see, but it's um, it's... It's like I said before, Paul recognizes the need for people around him, that this work is hard and we need each other, right? The body of Christ at work here. Amen. So we'll move on to Athens, and now I'm going to actually read a longer stretch of Scripture. Um, so we're going to start in verse 16. I'm going to read to 21 for right now, okay? So if you'll join with me. Now while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. He reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Okay, so Athens, I think this is pretty cool because I think for most of you, as you're walking through ancient scripture and we're talking about Thessalonica, Berea, Corinth, and all these places, you're probably like, outside of scripture, never heard of it, don't know, don't know the significance, right? But you hear Athens and you're like, wait a minute, I know I've heard that one. It's kind of important. So, and we get a little bit of a picture of what this city is in scripture, but I kind of want to delve in a bit more. Um, so Athens is at the time Paul is entering, is no longer this great political power. However, um, it is this big philosophical hub, um, as they kind of mentioned. People are interested and open to new ideas, and um, there's a lot of discussion. The great philosophers come out of here, right? Um, it's also one of the biggest university towns. Um, there are people who come there from all over to learn and to develop their careers, right? Kind of sounds familiar. We live in a university town. We get the picture. Maybe not this big, but, you know. And um, the other thing that we know about Athens from this um, is that it's a city of many gods, right? And I want to give you some, some descriptors to really, to really paint this picture. So from ancient sources, things that were said about Athens is there are more statues in Athens than of all of Greece, like not Greece, like what we know now, but Greece the empire put together. Um, and that, I love this one, it's easier to meet a god in Athens than a man. <laughs> so that's kind of what Paul's coming up against. And as we hear um, here, it says, you know, he's very troubled by this. 
Um, so yeah, and it's this philosophical hub, and we know that philosophical conversation is really common. We see Paul here going to the synagogue, but also the marketplace, um, spreading his word. And when you hear that, you might think, you know, he's just another guy over here rambling, and no one's paying attention. But in reality, people were really open to that and like wanted to hear. So Paul would have gotten a lot of listeners and would have gotten attention um, doing this. Um, two of the ones that are mentioned here, we have the Epicureans and the Stoics. Um, I know there are classics and philosophy majors in here, so I don't want to oversimplify this <laughs> to describe like the difference between those two. Um, but I do want to point out that basically for both of these schools of thought that were popular at the time, they were seeking to know how do you find human flourishing or human happiness? What are the things you do um, and, and what is that? And for the Epicureans, um, a lot of it was for seeking pleasure, um, like living a good life kind of thing. Um, versus for the Stoics, it was kind of more about virtue and um, your, your mental state. Um, once again, way oversimplification, I'm sorry. Um, but both of them hearing Paul's message, which is very different than that, um, and was just kind of introducing something new that kind of almost, I would say, kind of put those together, this idea of, of body and soul, right, and physical resurrection, they, they would have been paying attention, and they would have really wanted to know, and they, they would have sought him out, um, which sounds pretty cool, right? Like, okay, Paul's got an audience. However, then we get to where they bring him to the area Areopagus. What is that? Well, I have a picture of it, actually. I'm pretty sure that's a picture of it. I Googled it, and it was the first thing that came up. Anyone debate me? No? Cool. Never been there. Don't know. Okay. So this is it, and it's basically a big rock. Um, so it's also known, um, you might have heard this one before, as Mars Hill or Mars's Rock. Um, and so basically in... Um, Greek mythology, um, this place was thought to be where Mars, the god of war, was put on trial before all the other gods for the murder of Poseidon's son. Um, in ancient history then following, it actually served as this um, place, this meeting place um, that was a, basically a court, and it was one of the highest courts in the land um, for, in Greece for civil and criminal criminal, guys, it's bad, and religious matters. And the people that stood judge were known as um, the Areopagites, and they were high-ranking members of society who had a lot of influence. And so, um, once again, Athens, not a big political power anymore, but this place still very significant. Um, and I think what happens in the next kind of part of this chapter that I'm going to read is oftentimes when it's read, the interpretation is, here's Paul standing in front of everyone who's just wanting to hear him and giving a, a big sermon or a big speech to these um, Athenians. And it's kind of like um, depicted in this picture. A lot of art is depicted like this. Like he's, first of all, he's not even on that hill. Um, but that he's um, preaching to the masses. Um, but that's actually a misreading here, and it's important because if we know that this place was used even in that day as a court, then what's really happening when Paul is brought here is he's being put on trial. 
before them. Now, why? What would they put him on trial for, right? Well, it tells us right in verse 18, they put him on trial for preaching foreign divinities. And specifically, it mentions Jesus and the resurrection. Now, this is kind of cool. Um, there was kind of a misunderstanding we know from other sources that when he was talking about Jesus and the resurrection, the Greek word for resurrection, anastasis, they thought was like another god. So they thought that, um, that Paul was preaching about Jesus and um, his consort, anastasis. And so they had never heard of those, and um, that's kind of the charge brought against him. What's really interesting is that, um, that those are the same charges that were brought against Socrates, one of them anyway, and when he was famously convicted at that same court many years before. Now you might wonder, okay, so you said, Allison, that this is like a city of more gods than people. What's the issue? Um, well, the issue is, yes, they had many gods. However, they were established, limited, and controlled. And so it was still very much a crime to come in with foreign ideas um, and foreign gods. And so Paul is still very much being put on trial for that. Allison, mm -hmm. I have a question that I'm not familiar with. Was Socrates held on trial for being a free thinker and foreign ideas and foreign Foreign ideas, foreign gods is what they put him on trial for. I don't know. I'm not, once again, not the classics majors. But you know who you can ask? Andrew Ficklin. He'll tell you. Um, but, but, and so I just make that connection to kind of, so you can get the historic significance of, of this place and, and this town, um, and see what, that they've done this before. Um, and it's important for us in understanding, because when we read what Paul's presenting next, we won't read it and see it and think it's like this sermon and this model for us. Rather, yes, it is in some ways a sermon. It is also his defense against these charges. So, with that being said, let's dig in, right? This is verse 22 through 31. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Amen. Yet, he is actually not far from each of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that, that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the heart and imagination of man. The times of ignorance of God are God overlooked, but now he commands to all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. 
quite a sermon. So I'm done now. Paul did it. Okay. Kidding. So this unknown God. Okay, so we read this, and it kind of sounds like Paul's saying that, okay, you have this, this idol set over here for an unknown God, but actually that was really God all along. And no, that is not the case, especially now that we know he's under trial, right? So basically, Paul, very cleverly, because Paul is a clever man, uses this un- unknown God marker as an entry point at which he can introduce a new idea, right? Because the fact that they have this marker here to an unknown God demonstrates that they have the capacity, the intellectual capacity to know that there are gods for whom they may not know yet, but they mark space for him in preparation, right? So he can, he can use that as his defense by saying, well, I'm not introducing a new God. Right here is the space for that. Here's that that's Jesus. Um, and the other cool thing about it is as he's doing that and as he's um, talking about these clues, right, these clues, like here's your own philosophers, your own poets say this, um, you have the space set out, he's pulling out these like hidden truths in their culture that kind of spark their imagination and capacity to believe and to help them out of their ignorance. You know, Paul says, you know, the time of ignorance God overlooked, right? And the truth of the matter is, when we look at that and we think about it, you know, ignorance was never God's plan. He allotted a space and time, it says, you know, for humans in different places. But we know the truth, right? God wants to know us, and God is seeking us. He's the Lord of all, not just the Jews. And so it's really cool to see how these little spot spaces are there preparing the way for their hearts to hear. So from there, from this place that Paul shows, okay, here's my inn. Here's a place from which you can imagine this in your own culture. He then goes to turn it all upside down, their whole religious system. I love if we look back in verse 6, the Thessalonians, what they're saying about Paul is, you know, these men who have come to turn the world upside down, and I just love it. And then here, that's what he's doing. So Um, if we look and kind of walk through this passage, here are some ways that he turns it upside down. So we see in verse 24, he says, you know, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. No. See, they've built these houses and these spaces all over town to host the gods. And here Paul comes saying, you know, you've built houses for for gods, but this God, the one that I'm telling you about, has come to make his house in you. Just a radical idea. Like, you don't need to be doing that. But what about you? I think, I think when we think about idols and we think about doing this, we just think about, oh, yeah, little wooden gods, things over here, ancient people, we don't do that. However, we can make an idol of our own god, really. And so sometimes I think, I know I'm guilty of this anyway, we can try and build these little houses in our life for God, like these little spaces. It's like, okay, God, that's where you go, right? We keep them kind of at a distance. But my question today is, are you letting God build his house in you by surrendering completely to his love and his will? Because that's what he wants. 
which is radical, even today. And then in verse 25, um, Paul says, Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything, right? So the system is set up where you have these markers for these gods, and the idea is you honor them and you bring them gifts so they don't smite you. That's a big fear. That's why they have these unknown god places out. It's like, just in case we missed one, we don't want them to be upset. And, they, and then sometimes you might bring gifts or offerings in order to receive blessings. That's the other idea. But here Paul is like, God doesn't need any of that. He's the giver of life. He gives. And then we see um, in verse 26, he continues talking about um, that he's created everything, every nation. And so a lot of these gods were attributed to certain cities, and here he is saying this god is for everyone, everywhere. And then finally in verse 29, um, we get to where he says, um, you know, since God is the maker of all, right, he can't be made into something that we have an image for or by something that our own hands can do, right? God is not like something we can make or even think about. He is the maker. And so he's kind of in this, the last part of their kind of religious system are these, these idols, right, that are around, um, that are these human-made, non-living representations for gods. But here he says, you know, he brings in Jesus here saying, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And this is where he brings Jesus into the picture. Now, Jesus, as opposed to these idols, right, is a living representation. God himself walking among us, coming for us. blows the other little wooden figurines, gold figurines, statues, no matter how big, just out of the water at that point. When has their God ever tried to do that, right? So then finally in verse 31, um, I think kind of the other, the other piece of this when he's talking about this day of judgment, um, that's kind of cool to think about when we know the context right here is that he's referencing this great court of God where God will reconcile us to himself, right? Where through the work of Christ, there is resurrection and there is assurance. And here he is in this dinky little court on a hill um, that was thought to be this great court in the world. It's kind of like, guys, get the real picture here. What you're doing here is not what matters. And so that's Paul's invitation here. Um, to the people in Athens, you know. And I think the biggest way in which Paul and in, indeed Jesus, you know, turns that religious system upside down is through grace, right? They, in their philosophies and in their religion, have been seeking to know the gods and to live a good life and do all these things by their own means. Um, but Paul's here like, no, this God is seeking you and is offering you resurrected life and redemption. And your only job right now is to receive that.
by receiving him. And so with that, um, we're going to move into a time of communion, as we always have made a habit of doing now every service, which is just beautiful. Um, And so on the night that Jesus was with his disciples um, having a nice dinner, it was going to be their last meal together, but the disciples didn't know that. You know, he suddenly, they're probably having a normal conversation, and suddenly he, uh, he, you know, takes the bread and looks at them, and, and he breaks it, which this is a really hard bread to break. <laughs> Who didn't get Hawaiian? No, I'm just kidding. <sighs> and he says, this is my body broken for you. Take and eat it. And I'm pretty sure the disciples at that point were probably thinking, how much wine have you been drinking, Jesus? You want us to eat you? So at that point, he takes the cup and he says, drink this, all of you, for this is my blood and the blood of the new covenant poured out for you. And it probably didn't make any sense then. But later, as he spread out among the cross, right, his body torn, and his blood poured out. Maybe it started to make sense. And that, in this act of communion, is what we come to accept. This is given for you, and all you have to do in return is accept. So today, as you come and you partake, I encourage you just to make that your act of reception and your act of worship, whether it's the first time or the thousandth time. Um, As you do so, um, you can come either to this side over here where Amanda and I will be stationed or over here where Kelsey and Sam will be stationed to receive that. Um, And if you need a gluten-free option, it will be here. So come all who are willing to accept that invitation.